Welcome to episode 16 of the Media Sport Podcast Series, available via SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and thank you for your company. This episode is special on a personal and professional level, as I'm about to speak to one of the leading international figures in the study of media sport for more than three decades, Professor David Rowe. Based in the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, is the author of 12 books and edited collections, including Popular Cultures, Rock Music, Sport and the Politics of Pleasure, Sport, Culture and the Media, The Unruly Trinity, and Global Media Sport, Flows, Forms and Futures. His books have been translated into several languages, including Chinese, French, Turkish, Spanish, Italian and Arabic. He's a Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and an Honorary Professor in the Faculty of Humanities and Science at the University of Bath in the UK. He's also an editor of the Journal of Sociology and Associate Editor of Communication and Sport and sits on the editorial boards of several other journals. I could go on to list many more of his achievements. Suffice to say, he's a distinguished scholar whose research and writing has played a significant role in legitimising the study of media and sport as as an area worthy of scholarly investigation, both in terms of popular culture and social practice. (laughs) Presently, we're sitting in a courtyard of a a very nice cafe called Seddon Deadly Sins in Footscray in Melbourne. Um, so please excuse any back, background noise, but we've both attended a workshop at Victoria University yesterday on the future of the sociology of sport in Australia, organised by Raymond Spay and Brent MacDonald, who for this sport thematic group, the Australian Sociological Association. Speaking alongside Karen Farquharson, Catherine Palmer and Kate Henne, David also delivered a public lecture last night on the topic of sport and the sociological imagination. David, thanks for taking the time to speak with the Media Sport Podcast series. Great to be here. Thanks for the very nice intro. Um, I'd like to begin with the subject of last night's lecture, um, and its invocation of the term coined by Sue Wright Mill. What does the conjunction of sport and the sociological imagination look like at this point in time? What's at stake in speaking about it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, perhaps lectures are um, a little uh, a little grand. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ten-minute rant, perhaps, <clears throat> but uh, we held the the public lecture, and we had, uh, as you know, a previous um, day of discussion uh, about the whole field, um, and the idea was to ascertain uh, where where sociology sits in relation to sport why it's important. Um, I think it's particularly important because sport has had a a fairly checkered history within sociology Um, and it's not uh, uncommon for people to run through that history which shows that it's been neglected, that is sport has been neglected within sociology, sports sociologists have been patronised and um, and made fun of on occasion. Um, but we, we were brought together because we really feel that sport's such a powerful, such an all-pervasive sociocultural institution. Um, sociology really needs to take um, a, ma- a major role in its uh, analysis, in, in researching it, in teasing out m- many of the questions 
that trouble sport um, sport shares those troubles with the rest of the society it's part of the society of course um, but sport also has its distinctive features and that that's really why we think that it's a good time in Australia where there is a cohort of people uh, interested in sport, researching it, but who are rather fragmented, rather scattered around the country, across different, different departments, different universities. Uh, and you know, this is our chance to uh, take stock of the field and see where we can take it. This also brings up this question around why sociology and sport have had a, I suppose, a chequered past. Is this relationship between people's backgrounds, why they choose to study sport, um, you know, the assumption or a, the inference that it's really fandom writ large. I mean, how, how have how have you developed that critical perspective? I mean, in relation to your own experience of sport, how how did you manage to connect the two? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a sports uh, aficionado uh, to a degree. I wouldn't say that I'm uh, the worst case of that. I, I actually um, you know, I keep a weather eye on sport. Of course, when I was younger, I played it, still do it a little. Um, but I came at it through a wider interest in popular culture. So. Um, my my studies, my undergraduate and then and then graduate studies in sociology, increasingly became uh, cultural in nature. Uh, I did an, an honours thesis on the anti anti psychiatry movement in in Britain, um, which sounds uh, slightly odd. But Ronald David Lang, R. D. Lang, was a a, a, a major figure um, who was. A public intellectual, of an eccentric one, but one of some, some standing who, who made real um, impact. I think um, in, in teasing out questions, existential questions, I suppose, <clears throat> questions of, of madness and resistance, and all kinds of of troubling issues. <clears throat> My master's was about beats and hippies. I was. At, through Lang, I got interested in in, in subcultures, dissident subcultures, um, and then through that, I did my PhD. I I became interested in in, in rock culture, uh, independent rock culture, another expression of dissidence, if you like, of not of not fitting in, um, of challenging social norms, and. So that, that's how I, 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 I sort of came to sport, through that, that intellectual history, and almost stumbled into it as a topic. I mean, I was interested in popular culture, but I was more interested in, in, in rock music and uh, in uh, popular journalism, probably. Uh, and I got into sport, as I often say, because my colleague... Uh, and, and friend um, Jeffrey Lawrence, we were working together in in the exotic location of Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, <laughs> and um, and uh, Jeff, who's a, a very distinguished rural sociologist, 
Um, I remember you know, was trying to find some justification for the amount of cricket he was watching on television in the, in the summer <laughs> holidays, but was also struck by you know, the being bombarded by advertising and you know, all the kind and kinds of messages that were being broadcast, all kinds of ideologies of gender and race and ethnicity and so on and said, you know, we've got to do something. Um, partly to justify our own leisure, which is kind of funny. And um, and and that's how we got we got into it. I sort of got on the team and we suddenly discovered after publishing a couple of pieces in 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 the Marxist uh, journal Arena that uh, there was a, a hunger for it and a real interest in it, uh, both in pockets of academe, but, but in, intriguingly uh, in in the wider public sphere. I mean, we had our books, and it seems very odd now, but back in the 80s, um, we had reviews of our books in major newspapers. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, uh, so it, it was... Um, I guess that, that kind of shift through critical sociological analysis of popular culture and into sport and then I essentially found it very difficult to get out because uh, I guess you would call it pent up demand um, you know, people wanted me to talk to write and research more about it and um, I was liking it a bit too a pop, sing a pop singer, you have a hit and people keep wanting you to play it um, and that's what I've been doing ever since Going back to your interest in dissidents um, you graduated from uh, with your PhD from University of Essex in around 86 and I mean, this is middle of Thatcher's Britain is this the political context that sort of informed how you go about developing a, a critical um, process and a, a critical way of thinking about politics and power? Yes, it did. Um, I There's a slightly um, complicated story there in that as I completed my PhD in 1986, uh, I completed it in Australia. So I had moved... Um, to Australia, part of the way through my PhD, and I, um, slightly comically, but with some seriousness, described myself as a refugee from Margaret Thatcher. Um, there was an, uh, an undisguised assault on sociology um, by the Thatcher government. Um, she made no secret of the fact that she felt that <coughs> sociologists were <coughs> essentially communist plants in the university and uh, there was a, a quite a successful campaign to, to first to hit Russian studies and um, Soviet studies within the universities and um, a sense that Sociology was next. Um, there, are, there are other personal reasons why I moved to Australia, um, but in, in, in professional terms, it was a very difficult time. The uh, 
very few jobs other than those of a casual nature and um, and that was a crucial aspect of my of my intellectual uh, formation that um, that, that, that period uh, and you know, it's a while ago now but it still looms large in the memory the the, Re the Reagan era uh, the Thatcher era of course it was uh, Fraser in, in Malcolm Fraser in Australia at the time who <clears throat> subsequently renounced much of his conservatism uh, yeah so all those things that, that form form you as an intellectual as, an, as a person among those I would definitely say the Thatcher era was a key one that's probably a personal question as much as anything, but what was it like moving from the UK to... Did you arrive in Wagga Wagga? Yeah, I mean, just for, for listeners who yeah. don't live in Australia, Wagga Wagga is a reasonably large regional centre in the middle of New South Wales. And it's a very, at least in, I'm guessing in the 1980s, is very far from being in any way cosmopolitan. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I, I had a, I had a, a, a initially I landed in Tasmania, a small island, uh, and um, I was there for almost a year. And that was a good way of uh, acculturating me because uh, uh, it's probably uh, one of the more British parts of Australia. And, um, and I was fascinated to see. I come from from the west country of England and. Uh, Lots of the names were West Country names, like the Tamar River and uh, Devonport and uh, Leicester. So that was kind of quite funny. Plus, the climate wasn't uh, uh, wasn't the kind of hot central climate that I uh, later discovered in Wagga. It, it was it was very different. Um, this is the early eighties. Um, I mean, it, I don't want to exaggerate the difference in that. I think anyone who's moved between Britain and Australia would know that I mean, there, are a lot, there are a lot of things in common, crucially language, um, and I would say, looking back, um, sport. I mean, the, one of the areas that, uh, that an English person can converse with an Australian um, is over sport, um, fractiously perhaps, uh, uh, <laughs> often. But shared um, discursive ground, mm. so uh, yeah, it was a big uh, a big shift. But after the grimness of um, of Thatcher's Britain, uh, yeah, I must say that uh, uh, you know Australia was preferable to me, and uh, and I've made it my home since, whilst uh, still travelling back to to U UK uh, for family and. And professional reasons, frequently. Um, looking over, I mean, reflecting on the period since then, I mean, what are the what are the key theorists you either use now, but or, or keep going back to when you want to be provoked or want to, you know, be sort of um, motivated to really think about a problem? Well, I always say that the person who really turned me on to sociology was the late Stanley Cohen, um, who wrote a famous book, uh, Folk Devils and Moral Panics, The Making of Mods and Rockers, and you can see the connection there with 
sort of my interest, therefore, in beats and hippies and then punk musicians and so on. Um, and um, Cohen was crucial because I had what you could describe as a classical sociological education, which meant that I had to wade through um, you know, structural functionalism with, uh, for lengthy periods, American school, Tolkup Parsons, and so on. And, um, it, it, was hard, it was hard going. I, I, I became a sociologist partly as an act of rebellion, <laughs> having gone to uh, a Catholic school um, in, in England and, and my headmaster, an Irish Christian brother, refusing to, um, saying that he wouldn't uh, recommend me. Uh, even though I was you know, a pretty, pretty reasonable student, but he wouldn't recommend me to do sociology. He wouldn't support me in, in that because he felt that it was um, morally questionable. Um, and that, that kind of, um, of course, pushback from him um, only made sociology more alluring to me. And, of course, so then was a bit of a shock coming to wade through the... Parker Parsons and structural functions and social system theory. Oh dear. And uh, so I, I kind of worked through. I did um, politics and psych psychology as, as, as my subsidiary subject. Um, but I was looking for a direction. And then when I lighted on, on Cohen's book, it, um, it showed me how sociology could, could be profound, it could ex help explain the world, it could intervene in the world and politically, and it could be very well written uh, in a way that, uh, evocatively and um, you know, that it, it, it would, you know, I, I don't think I could ever be the writer that, that Stan Cohen was at his best, but it, re it really showed me that, um, that, that sociology done the right way could be a very positive force. And so I kind of worked through from there. Um, and I mean, I would say a crucial formative influence would be the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham, the so-called Birmingham School. And of course its leading figure, Stuart Hall, the, the late, sadly late Stuart Hall. And um, their uh, culturalist form of, um, of radical social theory and, um, and, and engaged scholarship uh, rung a real bell with me, as it did with other people. Um, it was through them I was introduced to Gramsci and, and theories of hegemony. Um, I mean, I... <coughs> course then engaged with a whole series of theorists uh, from Althusser and uh, later Foucault um, the, so a series of, of intellectual um, influences but I, I would say the, the most powerful one was the Birmingham school I think that was that was key for me mm. and it also sets up an interest I'm thinking about 
having come through the Australian university system mm. myself, and this ongoing question about the boundaries between cultural studies and sociology, which mm. depending on which country you are, mm. you tend to shift ahead a bit. I mean, how do you balance, I suppose, an obvious interest in culture mm. with you know, a sociological perspective, or, or is, in your mind, it's just something that you, is to be worked through in practice. Yeah. It, it is hard, and uh, you know, when we went to this event that we were describing before, we were, we were, we're talking in disciplinary terms, and uh, and but much of my work has been disciplinary in nature. And I always recall having a conversation with a cult, cultural sociologist, Jim McGuigan, who then. And uh, he said, I thought very wisely, that when he went to a cultural studies conference, he felt like a sociologist, and when he went to a sociology conference, he felt like a cultural studies person. And um, and I, it is difficult, I think, to, um, to play various sides of the line, one would say, um, and, she said, and to negotiate in different contexts uh, the, the, that relationship. I, um, in very practical terms, am struck by the fact that what most of what I do in in Australia um, sits under the hum- uh, humanities banner, uh, almost as a bureau- bureaucratic uh, decision, because cultural studies, and I guess I would regard myself as the social you know, as part of the sociology wing of cultural studies, sits under the humanities. Um, uh, an area within for, uh, for the purposes of grants and uh, the Australia Research Council. Uh, so, although I have done research both in the in the social sciences and uh, under that banner, and also in the humanities, it's been mostly under humanities because that's where the culturalist work has been done. So, to some degree, you, you just have to practically negotiate those. Um, bureaucratic constraints. Um, they're not particularly deep in intellectual terms for me. I, I find myself kind of um, moving uh, across literatures, across methods and bodies of knowledge reasonably freely. Um, I, I describe sociology as my founding discipline, but I, I would never want to be captured by a kind of disciplinary rigidity. So, um, I mean, to some degree, it's just the, fla- the flavour of, of, of the research, of the writing. Um, changes with context, changes with who you're working with, what the subject is, who's providing the money for you to do it, who's employing you, all those kinds of questions. Uh, for me, the, it's not the the badge that's so important, it's the work. And thinking about that openness you bring to your research <laughs> and, and shifting that into the context of sport, what are the, the major advances or the changes you've observed over the years in the study of sport that have, I suppose, illuminated sport in a way that wasn't previously possible or have there been setbacks you've observed? I mean, what, what's, what's the trajectory been from your perspective? I think the field has advanced um, slowly. I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm, really, I'm really talking about research more uh, than anything else. Uh, the undergraduate uh, scenario is, I think, rather different, and I'm not close enough to the coalface there. Uh, but I, 
I do I do hear from my colleagues that things are a bit tough in 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 the uh, for example in degrees around um, sports science and, um, and uh, phys ed and uh, and others that the sociology component has been under threat and, um, which is a shame uh, I think it, but I think to some degree it is stronger in in the more general humanities and social sciences so there's there's been a bit of rebalancing there um, uh, it, it was particularly hard at, at the outset to get sport on the agenda uh, to be taken seriously and uh, uh, colleagues were often hostile, both sociologists and non-sociologists. I think that's improved. The big, the big change for me has been in the media field and I mean, you and I uh, did the research on online media sport uh, not too many years ago and things have advanced even more uh, since then. Uh, I mean there was a period when it, it, when I wrote um, Sport Culture in the Media at the, <clears throat> at the end of the last century that uh, you, know, you could talk largely about television newspapers especially television newspapers and, and other media, <clears throat> radio, film literature and so on but but television, um, broadcast television, <coughs> was the main game. Now it's still in, in, incredibly powerful, but uh, television is changing, and the whole experience of mediated sport is, is changing. And you know, not just saying that because you're interviewing me, but your own your own work around around media technologies. Um, Know, locative media and all, all, all kinds of um, of new technologies that are changing our relationship to what we call sport. I mean that that is a very dynamic area, and uh, and it does problematize what constitutes sport itself. What is the separation between sport and other domains of culture? Um, where does the self begin and the sporting end kind of thing there's kind of an interpenetration there all kinds of difficult questions which I find very difficult to answer most people do but it's especially difficult for the people who are, who are trying to make money out of these things uh, in the in the various industries um, one thing I will say you know, will say is that hearteningly the, the particular area of sport that I've concentrated on its mediation uh, has become more important not less there's no return to a, an unmediated sports and pure uh, physicality so that's um, that's promising, but uh, across the whole field, I do I do think that people uh, are now finding serious treatments of sport in the main sociology textbooks. Sport used to be almost entirely uh, absent from that. Um, there are plenty of of distinguished sociologists who are prepared to put their toe in the water there, or um, you know, to make uh, a commitment to the serious study of, of sport. So that. That I, I find 
uh, I'm optimistic about. I ask this because of the fact we've worked together and written together is, and the fact that I'm now writing a lot about mobile media. I mean, what, sort of, you talked about the flux as constant sort of process of innovation change. And you know, if I look at the trade press at the moment, it's kind of weird because we're back at virtual reality, we're talking about <coughs> drones, we're talking about wearable. What are we in danger of forgetting? I mean, with this constant chase of the new, which is sometimes is, you know, mm. gimmick, but sometimes speaks to deeper structural transformations. I mean, but, you know, what can, what can we take mm. from the past in order to sort of grapple with that, that, that difficulty of reading the present? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... It, that um, the kind of sociology I favour is an historically informed one, and I think it's, you know, it's very dangerous if you get into so-called presentism or, or futurism, either of those, either to think the way things are uh, uh, somehow eternal, or that somehow the, you know the future um, is uh, like some ideas at the moment will, will become material reality or are material reality already. Um, I think you know. Often people are very premature there. They've got the historical questions, which inform sociology, are still relevant. This is an argument that I made in my talk. That you know, it would be perverse not to keep asking the founding sociological questions about structures of power, about social institutions and practices, and how they're formed, and how social subjects are formed. And I think there is a danger of uh, of, of technophilia, of, of being blinded by the by the technology and its possibilities. I mean, I'm amused when you when you talk about virtual reality, uh, because for many years I taught I taught a subject on technological change, an undergraduate um, subject, um, and. Uh, Virtual reality was was supposed to have have become uh, commonly used technology, if not the most dominant technology. Last century, not this one. Uh, you know, it was all supposed to be happening, and um, and of course, it's taken a while. So all the people who punted on. Um, on virtual reality technology, um, would have lost, lost. Uh, I mean, if it was just venture capital, then it's used to that. But if they actually put serious resources into it, they would, on the whole, not been successful. Um, you know, 3D is come and gone, um, back again. Uh, yeah, the, the, that's the key thing for me: not to become blinded by the technology. That doesn't mean you say nothing ever changes. I mean, that would be absurd. Uh, but we are still human subjects. So whichever technology we're using or is using us, uh, we have to take a position with regard to. And that, that for me, is um, requires an historical sen sensibility. I think there's a... Uh, there's an exaggeration, for example, of the the power of the so-called consumer. That now it used to be, it used to be that 
the media just told people what they want, when to watch, and now um, it's the all, all powerful uh, sovereign, sovereign consumer. And, uh, and somehow these large corporations are uh, at their mercy. And you, know, you and I are both very interested in political economy, and I would generally say that it's nonsense. The corporations might be changing. This is something we wrote about in Sport Beyond Television, that, it, that, that, that technology companies were becoming more important in the sports sphere rather than me, the old media companies. And what we are prepared to give to those companies, I find mind-boggling. You know, the privacy that we are prepared to give away, that we become little bites of data, little bites that make up the big data that gets gets traded, and so on. And we are the empowered ones uh, because we seem we feel that we get these technologies somehow for free. Uh, I mean, and I think that was something that that we try to uh, argue in, in that research was that we, we wanted to take full account of the change. We could see how thoroughgoing that change was. But the change does not mean that the questions which have traditionally been asked in sociology become suddenly redundant. Who benefits? Who doesn't? How does this happen? Who has the power? Uh, who makes the decisions? I mean, all those kinds of very important sociological questions do not get wiped away because someone's got a shiny new piece of technology. Preparing for this interview, I, I went back and took a look at your very, very extensive um, number of, of publications over the years. And it's really interesting because it's a rare thing to see you know, 30 years of of work sitting there. Mm. Yeah. What stands out most clearly in terms of what's been cited and used and spoken about is uh, among many things, but the media sport cultural complex keeps popping up quite, quite um, you know, prominently. What, what were you trying to get at? Where did that concept come from? And what were you trying to? What are you trying to explain with it? How has it changed as you've begun that explanation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the idea of the complex is um, uh, Suit Shelley, who um, was uh, actually a master's sociology student with me at the University of York many years ago. <laughs> Didn't know. And uh, yeah, so and uh, so he. Know, came up with the media, uh, the media sports complex, and then uh, and that was kind of refined uh, by Joe Maguire and the media, media sport production complex, and so on. And I, um, I mean, it, I had it what you might say was not uh, a cataclysmic <laughs> uh, intellectual innovation, but I, I introduced media, the idea of the media sports cultural complex. Um, I guess for two for two reasons. One is that, I mean, as I've argued um, persistently, that the convergence of sport and media as as forms of culture, as industries, um, various other by various other measures, is is substantial. And so I was persuaded by the idea of the complex, but. Um, I felt I didn't want there to be a, necessarily a productive, productivist bias, as I put it, that there would be 
just this idea that there was something that uh, that had come together that was um, uh, yeah an industrial entity essentially that was just producing text and I wanted um, to introduce culture because uh, culture is a a system, an assemblage of, uh, of practices, of, um, of making texts, but then working on them and reinterpreting them and repurposing them. And, uh, uh, it's a much more free-floating kind of concept. And I could see the tentacles, if you like, of sport, of mediated sport, appearing in more and more reaching into more and more parts of the wider society. Uh, and uh, therefore I thought it had um, very serious consequences for that society. Uh, and indeed at a global scale. So that's why uh, I, I introduced it, to, to take, take account of, it, of it, its expansion its, and uh, its multi-layered na nature, its dynamism, and its influence. So that that concept has caught uh, the imagination or the interest of a number of, uh, of other scholars. I've seen it. You know, gets, pleasingly, it gets it gets cited. Um, I just it takes that that notion of uh, of the com of the complex, but opens it up to a, a range of possibilities that. A more limited idea um, of a complex controlled by, you know, completely controlled by particular interests would, wouldn't quite capture that. I mean, I, I'm something I was reading your guys and Jeff Lawrence's and Tony Miller's work as an undergrad. And mm. One thing I always you know, what appealed to me about that work is this, in, in, you know, the, the way that sport isn't sort of cordoned off, it's actually connected to broader and wider social, cultural and economic formations. Which then raises this question about the other subjects you've written about besides sport. Mm. I mean, what you have written about other subjects, mm. and how could you, you know, talk a little bit about them, but also then how have they influenced how you've gone, when you've come back to sport, mm. or sports major or sports sociology, how have they influenced how you've gone about your research and teaching? Um, yeah, so if you take that, that I'm interested in, in, in culture in the broad, and then, uh, and in particular, the leisure dimensions of culture, uh, you know, where, where's my other work taken me? Um, well, I mean, I've written uh, about tourism, for example. I, mean, I don't do a lot on it anymore, but um, I, I became uh, particularly concerned, partly, you know, for for um, pragmatic reasons. I was the head of a department of leisure and tourism studies for a period, so um, I became interested, interested in, in you know, the, the construction of. Um, of national cultures, essentially through uh, through tourism, the way societies project themselves, um, and uh, I I've also done work on in the, in the leisure domain on the nighttime economy. I've done research on that um, because I 
was interested in the ways in which uh, cities um, have certainly the inner cities have sought to reinvent themselves through certain cultural practices uh, around largely around alcohol alcohol leisure one might say um, and uh, you know, the various arguments there about um, the freedom to express oneself, have fun, uh, you know, versus uh, other 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 questions, including violence, and exclusion, and urban amenity, those kinds of questions. Um, I I did research on tabloid tabloid culture, tabloid media, in particular newspapers, but uh, tabloid television as well. Um, because I was fascinated with the changes to the, one would say, the public sphere uh, by the increasing, increasing in, in infusion of cultural elements associated with playfulness and pleasure, um, but somehow combined with a form of right-wing populism that was uh, championed by the Sun, in particular newspaper, Rupert Murdoch's uh, Sun under Margaret Thatcher, which takes me back to, of course, my experience um, in Britain uh, in that unhappy time. Uh, so uh, I've, I've done um, some work also on heritage, on the notion of, of uh, placemaking and uh, the way people re remember and, and mobilise the past. I mean, there are the, a range of other of other areas, but those have been the main ones. And I mean, all of those uh, areas of of interest for me are connected in that they're always always about social and cultural relations. How how uh, life is made meaningful in particular contexts, um, how uh, humans um, produce their own lives, you know, it's a very kind of Marxist kind of formulation in a way, um, but not under circumstances of their choosing, uh, you know, they're making history, uh, but societies are generally not equal, um, there are structures of domination, uh, there, are, there is resistance, but resistance can be multifaceted, not all modes of resistance are politically progressive, uh, you know, all those kinds of questions. And I, I would say one, one thread that has run through my work has been a fascination with national culture, the idea of nation, the idea of the, of the nation state, this great of invention of modernity. I mean, I, so when I think about those changes, I, th I think about mod the modern institutions that have interacted, the institutions of modernity that have interacted in such a potent way, the nation, the media and sport uh, all pro uh, produced uh, essentially out of modernity, shaping modernity in really important ways. Um, and I've been 
involved in a number of debates around globalization, I've written about substantially transnationalism and, and the nation, and the, sh the shifting relationships between them. I am, I think it's fair to say, uh, of the school that says that the nation is not dead. <laughs> like, I acknowledge uh, globalization. Um, of course, in fact, I've um, argued in favour of globalisation against the objections of, of some. Uh, argued in favour in, in the sense of saying that it's happening, and also actually saying it's not all bad, uh, as some people might think. But um, I still think the nation is still uh, incredibly powerful uh, notion. Um, an entity and I mean Benedict Anderson died recently and um, I think his concept of the imagined community has been much abused um, and perhaps become a little sort of a cliched insertion into, into some um, some articles and books but uh, has retained its relevance I think the the idea of how you construct a national consciousness, uh, how it is used, um, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, is still a relevant question. Funny you talk about Benedict Anderson, because, yeah, and the, the occasional, maybe not so occasional, times abuse of that term, imagine communities, mainly because of you know, close reading of Anderson's book talks of the fact that these are material, everyday social practices of producing the map, the census, the museum, the reading community, and how they connect to both government and the creation of markets and things like this. Is your thinking then is why, you know, how does that connect us, how, how sport contributes to that process? Well, I mean, sport has been... I'm not the only person who's ever said this, but, but sport has been one of the most um, powerful and compelling ways of representing the idea of nation, uh, an existing nation, a nation that you, uh, you would like to become a nation, um, uh, the relationship with other nations. I mean, sport's been incredibly, uh, incredibly important for that. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time looking at global mega media events, and they're all organised around nations some, in, in some way. Um, and that's a, so it can, it can be a very powerful um, idea. I mean, Jeff Lawrence and I wrote a, a piece a long time ago in Australian Left Review which I was amazed to see cited recently it was written a long time ago someone, someone's still citing it in, in Australian Left Review a little, a little magazine uh, uh, about the way that the idea of nation is used so consistently to, um, to kind of try to heal uh, the wounds um, cover over the, the fractures, uh, the breaks, um, pull people who are otherwise um, enemies or who don't really know each other, pull them together and some kind of give them imprint on them, at least if only temporarily, uh, a common identity. 
I mean, sport has been very important for them because um, because there's a team, <laughs> because uh, or an individual in competition with another team or another individual. Uh, they are infused with a particular identity or meaning, uh, which can be articulated readily with nation, uh, which is effectively compelling. People who don't find themselves nationalistic or patriotic in any particular way somehow find they become so. Donald Horne famously said that the, uh, you know the, the sort of great Australian skeptic who wrote the again even more um, much of. Uh, abused concept of the lucky country to describe Australia. But he he talks about you know, he unaccountably started crying when when um, Australia won the America's Cup in 1983, and he didn't you know he he didn't had no interest in yachting and uh, and wasn't a nationalist in in any obvious sense and not a sport lover, but uh, you know you can see. And sport can work in that way and, and on a more grand scale uh, then it is very important to the nation that's why I've, you know, I've said that, that our national media national sport and, and the nation itself are, uh, have had such an important you know, formative relationship um, in obviously in particular parts of the world and then by extension across the whole world because when it's carved up in a, in a variety of ways peoples are brought into different kinds of relationship one simple uh, relatively simple uh, classification is that of, of the, the national and it works perfectly with, with sport somehow uh, 90 minute patriots is, is the term that's um, used by about Richard Giannotti I recall talking about you know Scots um, who who become kind of very nationalistic um, when Scotland's playing anybody but especially England um, uh, that may not ca- that may not carry over into everyday life all consistently all the time but can certainly be mobilised in a referendum for example an interesting feature you agree, it's something that really does stand out when you sort of look at your, your, your record is a, a willingness to engage publicly to write media commentaries to do media interviews to you know, on television, radio in the, you know, writing for newspapers why do, you, why, have you, why do you choose to engage publicly? What do you get from it? It was a decision I made um, a few years ago. And, um, I mean, I come, I, I come out, of the, um, out of the... I have a working-class background. <laughs> so I'm not... Kind of the first in family in, in the universities and so on. So um, I, I've always had a sense of responsibility as a public servant. I feel, I, you know, I do regard... I know that university academics are a particular kind of public servant, but, you know, most of my wages um, have, you know, come from providing uh, public labour, public service. And 
So I always felt, well, that my I have a, a duty to my employer, um, the university, uh, to my students, undergraduate, postgraduate. So I um, feel that I should give whatever whatever I can give them that is of value. But that's not enough. That I don't want just to operate within this environment. Um, the contained environment of, of the university. So I always thought that went, that was part of my job description. And also it would be a bit odd, a bit perverse to be to, to talk constantly about media and cult you know, popular culture without being in a sense part of it as well. Even a minor part of it. Taking a place within it. Um, so I've all I've always done it. It's it, it's not easy. Uh, it can be time-consuming. It can be frustrating. It can bring heat down on you, threats, insults. Uh, but I I think that it's a very important part of the job for me. I encourage my colleagues to do it too. Um, and I know it's easier to do in some areas than in others. You know, if, you're, if you're in medieval studies or something, it may be more difficult to get out into the public sphere. Not, it's not impossible, but it's easier if you work in, a, in an area of popular culture like me. Um, and I do think that and believe that there is an audience out there and I, uh, of beyond the university system that is um, is drawn to this these kinds of concerns. It's important parts of their everyday life. They may not particularly like what I have to say. They may furiously disagree with me, but that's. For me, a very important part um, of, of a mature life of citizens. So, for example, if the cricketer Chris Gale um, makes a clumsy advance on live national television to a female reporter, um, and in my view, seriously disrespecting her, as a media professional, that I'm prepared um, to go into print or to go on radio and say that this, for me, is unacceptable conduct um, and it's, uh, it has particular implications for gender relations uh, that need to be challenged. Uh, some people are never going to like that kind of intervention, but. Um, you know, it's part of the public service. Uh, there, is, there are people who agree or disagree, but it is taking my whatever knowledge that I've been able to uh, generate in the university context and taking it to the wider society because universities essentially should, in, should be in systematic contact with societies beneath, they should not be the, uh, the proverbial uh, ivory town. What are you working on at the moment? What can we look forward to uh, over the next couple of years? I, don't, I don't see no signs of slowing down. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it would be, it'd be nice to... Um, 
uh, to slow down um, a bit. Um, I mean, a number of my colleagues who are you know now retiring, you get you get kind of venerable at some some at some some stage, and um, people get, um, sort of ask you how, how much longer you're going to keep going. Um, I have three major product projects on at the moment. One I'm just uh, in the stage of finishing on uh, sport, nation, and cultural citizenship. Um, uh, in Greater Western Sydney, it's work on how people orient themselves to sport in Australia in a very diverse context. Uh, Greater Western Sydney is the is the most probably the most diverse part of Australia. So you have new citizens, uh, new residents, not from Europe in many cases. And then they, they confront this very powerful Australian national sporting culture. And I've been exploring that. Uh, I'm doing a big study uh, with Tony Bennett, Graham Turner and others um, on Australian cultural fields, as would be implied is heavily influenced, or uh, its reference point certainly is the work of Pierre Bourdieu, who's also been a significant figure for me intellectually and so we've been doing a kind of survey on Australian cultural practices or dispositions essentially tastes um, uh, both production and consumption and uh, there's that research and I'm also doing some research also in Greater Western Sydney on uh, cultural work essentially uh, people who um, who are identify themselves as artists or creative practitioners, um, and who kind of try to carve a life out for themselves in in that very difficult uh, area of of cultural practice at kind of ground level. So three three uh, studies that keep me busy. Uh, I mean that bring those three big projects in I think I'll um, I'll be satisfied with that and then after that I think that I you know, want to keep making a contribution as long as I'm as I'm able um, to the field I enjoy mentoring uh, younger academics and postgraduates and so on um, I enjoy my media work um, I'll keep researching and writing for I say, as long as I'm able um, I think many of us can't imagine what it would be like to stop it would be a kind of you can't you know you can't suddenly decide oh it's, you know, I've reached a, a certain stage of my life now I'll, I'll flick the switch so if Faber says politics is a vocation then I would say well um, academic um, yeah the practice of the academic is also a vocation. Very nice point to finish on. Thank <laughs> you, David. As always, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Brett.